Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Yes, this is Attorney Charles Marshall here. Though I'm not acting in my capacity as an, as an attorney today. I am acting in my capacity as a teller of truth and an exposer of lies. And so here we are, March 4th, 2021, and the uh, acceleration in everything, uh, large and small, all over the planet, all over the country, all over California, where I am, Hosting the show today, as always. Well, not as always, but very typically Southern California, San Diego, to be exact. So here I am in sunny San Diego, and there is a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to cover today. So uh, I've kind of framed today's set of topics around the zombie term. So what do I mean by zombie mortgages and zombie foreclosures? Well, I'll start with zombie foreclosures. Zombie foreclosures, this isn't my term, by the way. Uh, though I will take credit for zombie mortgages, and it, it may have an analog out there somewhere in the reporting world, somewhere in the business financial journalism world. Uh, nevertheless, I'm happy to give myself attribution for the term zombie mortgages. Uh, I will give uh, attribution at large. I don't know who created the term zombie foreclosure, but it's widely used. And in fact, even the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is kind of referencing this term zombie foreclosure. So we'll start off with that today. What is a zombie foreclosure? Well, whether the consequence is unintended or not, and I think when it comes to all things COVID, this listening audience, whatever side you're on, uh, yay or nay, to support those who I support, which I, I heartily uh, defend both on this show and otherwise, uh, the homeowners, those who are being foreclosed upon, those who are being evicted from their homes after foreclosure, uh, that's the party on, on behalf of whom I advocate, whether it's legally or non-legally, as I do on this uh, radio show. As a reminder, uh, there is no legal uh, advice imparted on this show. It's strictly uh, meant to be an informational gathering place. And whatever you hear or don't hear on this show during the course of today's broadcast, uh, it behooves you to consult with an attorney or otherwise follow up on the information that I cover today. So zombie foreclosures existed uh, 
and of course they've always existed in some sense, but they became a really big deal in 2009. The last time you had millions of, uh, of borrowers and, and homeowners in a situation where they couldn't pay their mortgages. And the reason they couldn't pay them then is because they were massively underwater and they couldn't get any price support to refinance or otherwise handle the financial circumstances of having these large payments to make on a quickly uh, decelerating asset. And since that affected so many millions of homeowners all over the country, uh, a lot of those people got behind on their mortgages. They couldn't make payments. They didn't have money to do other things. The economy tanked. The valuation of a lot of things tanked. And everybody knows what happened from there. There were the massive uh, devaluations in the real estate market. Uh, what we have now is the real estate market in large parts of the country, including San Diego and most of California, is continuing to accelerate to stratospheric levels. And yet, at the same time, you have a lot of homeowners who have literally abandoned their homes because there's so many months behind in payments. So, again, I can't, you know, get into analysis, and it's all speculation, though, of course, there's, there's data on all sides as with so many issues. But it's not the purpose of this show to get into analysis on whether the moratorium was set up to, uh, to accelerate the crisis that's now happening or not. Uh, I think one can observe that if you tell people don't pay your mortgage for a year or six months or three months, and now it's going on a year plus, those people are going to have a tough time paying their mortgage ever. So that's where we're at now. We've got literally millions of uh, homeowners, uh, depending on various estimates. Uh, there's some data that 2.1 million families are behind three months on their mortgage payments and that 10 million are behind. We're talking families here. So the numbers of individuals, there's an estimate that it's about 10% of the U.S. population. Not 10% of the homeowners, much higher uh, would be that number, maybe even 25%, but certainly 10% of the U.S. population. So many millions of households. So what happens with a zombie foreclosure is the homeowner simply abandons the property. They're three months behind, they're six months behind, they're nine months behind. They figure, I better get out. I better exit now. I'm never going to pay these mortgages, uh, arrearages off. I might as well just exit. Now, you don't get a lot of this in California. You get some. Uh, I have seen some articles referencing some of the hotspots for this, uh, Georgia, Kansas, some other places in the Midwest. Uh, the bottom line is this is a trend. It's going to continue. And, you know, any kind of relief is probably going to come down to, you know, federal bailouts, federal handouts of some sort. I think, frankly, that's greatly needed right now. I do worry about social policy, political policy, where another huge portion of the population is essentially – existing largely on this government largesse, but again, 
not a topic for today's show. That's way beyond the scope of what we're discussing. It is worrisome, though, and I think people should be worried because it, it further skews the fundamentals of, of the mortgage market. And so then we get to zombie uh, mortgages, not zombie foreclosures, but zombie mortgages. Uh, zombie mortgage is basically um, my term for these endless securitized loans that I think Neil has really sharpened his uh, descriptive capacity for all of this. And he's got a great blog post on his blog, just put up yesterday, in fact, about uh, a lawsuit where there was a deposition taken, uh, somebody from Auckland, there's also a nation star interlay, you know, Mr. Cooper, the, uh, the creative, uh, you know, clown world sounding name of, uh, of nation star that they, they created this little fake, uh, gnome de guerre. And yes, it is a name of war since it's coming from nation. So, uh, Mr. Cooper and this individual who showed up, he wasn't even really, uh, any kind of corporate representative. He's just a robo signer. And he was just trying to, to pass off uh, the usual kind of flim-flam, the usual finesse referring to the holder of the notes. Uh, well, as Neil keeps hammering, and Neil will continue to hammer, and I will reference myself, if you're the holder of a note, and again, this goes back to first principles, which those who've listened to me on this show know I talk about first principles all the time. As in law, so in life. As in life, so in law. Everything has first principles. And the first principle of loan uh, transaction is accounting. There should be an accounts receivable. There should be ongoing accounts payable. There should be a documentary trail to show that, yes, the so-called holder of the note really does hold the note and that they've got paperwork to show they have the note in possession. And that they have an accounting screen so the payments are being made to them. Or, and this is obviously an important or, or if they've assigned that right of payments, which so often happens in these securitized cases, to let's say various servicers, whoever the current servicer is, when they reference the payments that they're receiving, and a lot of times they are receiving payments, even when loans are in default, uh, the homeowners will sometimes still make payments to try to keep up. That accounting should correspond to the accounting of the so-called note holder. There should be ledgers all around there. And if there isn't a ledger with the so-called note holder, that's a problem. That means that the so-called note holder is not really the note holder. Else they would have the bona fide accounting to show that they were actually directly responsible for taking payments on the loan. Or if not directly responsible in their assignment of rights elsewhere to collect was legitimate and bona fide. Again, they'd have their own accounting to reference this. If that accounting doesn't exist, then the reasonable legal conclusion is they don't actually own or control the note. 
And so it, it becomes at that point legitimate to start throwing around words like fraud. Now, I'm not saying that as a legal conclusion or even a legal description. I am saying that one could talk about fraud in this context, and it certainly sounds in fraud. And it sounds in misrepresentation when they claim to have the right to collect on a note that they don't actually hold. What is sad for our side is that it takes so much to expose this. Here you had to go deep into a lawsuit. You had to have a really sharp attorney who sets up a deposition, who does all the things to follow up on the deposition. With any corporate deposition, it's almost always directed to the person most knowledgeable regarding the facts at issue in the deposition. That's the typical scenario. That was the case here. And yet they bring a robot signer. I mean, this is offensive. Uh, so this was exposed in this case. And I'm not saying that it takes this level of digging and detail and expenses and resource allocation to create this deposition and on and on and on. And sometimes written discovery is useful, but the problem with written discovery is words are malleable and words can be finessed and manipulated to some extent as they are in depositions, as they were in this particular deposition that Neil is referencing in his blog post of uh, March 3rd. Uh, the bottom line is that this is a really smart attorney, and he was able to expose, you know, what, what, I, what, what I will say colloquially, not for legal purposes in terms of this show, is a fraud. And he was able to expose that. At least this creates some template where those with fewer resources, those who maybe are stuck with written discovery, they can't float depositions, they don't have the money, they don't have the wherewithal, they, they don't have an attorney with skills to do that. And, you know, you really shouldn't be doing litigation unless you handle depositions, but we live in a strange world where there are all kinds of people doing all kinds of things that they either have no business doing or they're inadequately prepared to do. Nevertheless, that's what should happen. They're in a perfect world, would be depositions in these cases. It's an aspirational goal, I will tell my listeners, to be able to make those arrangements in your own cases, be you in a non-judicial foreclosure or a judicial foreclosure environment. Uh, another aspect to this that I think Neil focuses on, and his focus is very well taken, essentially you want an accountant in the middle of your case as the homeowner. Uh, it doesn't have to be a CPA, but you want somebody understanding and analyzing and ferreting out accounting principles all along the so-called chain of title, following those to see is there a real genuine accounting in your case? Is there somebody who can represent that, yes, I'm taking payments on this note, and here's my accounting sheet. Here's my accounting ledger to, ledger to show that. So often the case, so often in these cases, there is no such accounting ledger, not a, not a legitimate one, not a bona fide one. 
And I think one can then reasonably call such mortgages zombie mortgages, like a zombie foreclosure where literally no one is home, hence the term. Uh, there's no one home defending or backing these zombie mortgages. There's no one who can stand up and say, yes, these are the uh, proper accounting uh, principles that you should be relying on. And yes, uh, there is a true accounting on this loan, and here it is. So uh, the other aspect that uh, we're going to cover uh, today, of course, relates to COVID-19 and I think all of us are tired of hearing the term coronavirus or COVID-19. However, we describe this new era, as it's sometimes called, at which we're reminded that we're never going back to the old era. Well, again, the discussion of that for today's show is certainly beyond the scope of this show. Uh, In terms of the COVID-19 reality that's in front of us, I have noticed the trends. I'm noticing that I think partly because of the delays in foreclosures and evictions, Southern California is really kind of accelerating uh, back to uh, an eviction and foreclosure space, so to speak. And they're quite active here in Southern California, again. And some counties, including San Diego, virtually all trials, including jury trials, are being held at the state level. They are being held uh, virtually uh, through various Zoom-like programs online where there is live video, where there's the ability to sort of have interactivity among the participants, where you can even put on evidence and the particular evidence presented will show up on the screen that everybody's looking at people can download in some cases and certainly view whatever that evidence is. So this is all accelerating as we speak. Uh, Even within California, there's still some counties where in-person and in-trial, so to speak, courtroom-based proceedings are still happening. Interestingly enough, Los Angeles is one of them. I mean, there are unlawful detainer trials Proceeding in Los Angeles, again, these, these are happening virtually in San Diego, as are superior court trials. Uh, nevertheless, in Los Angeles and some other places, they're still going old school in some cases. So we're going to have this hybrid environment for a while. And in all state or federal courts, in California anyway, and I think it's a largely going to be the case unless you are in a state like South Dakota or now apparently Texas where the mandates are suspended or not operative for one reason or another. You are going to have social distancing when you're physically in court for the most part, most places. You are going to have to wear a mask most places. And now per federal guidelines, in many cases that's going to be uh, a certain kind of mask, the uh, baklavas, the, the the cotton, uh, you know, the cotton garbs that, that that certain people wear. Those are not going to be accepted in, in some venues, though they still are in others. So, it's all this crazy patchwork of interweaving and often contradictory uh, guidelines 
and everyone's just going to have to navigate the space, check with local circumstances, local courts, to really find out the lay of the land, to find out if your particular matter is being heard only virtually, whether you're supposed to show up in person. I think this is especially difficult for pro-pers. I will say on the federal level that uh, there is a move toward allowing pro-pers to file documents through the, it's called the ECF, the Electronic Filing System, There is a move to enable and facilitate that. I will also say that, frankly, I don't think it's working very well. And I think with everything from navigation to passwords, uh, the system is not working properly for pro-per-pro-se filers. However, it's working in some respects, and I think there has to be a move toward enabling individuals to access these court systems. Now that the -the over-the-counter filing has literally been suspended in some courts, including federal, where you quote-unquote just drop box off the document in some federal courts, you no longer even can go to a window to interact with a clerk to to make a filing. You have to quote-unquote drop box it, meaning you leave the document, you get a timestamp on it, and you hope it gets processed. Um, better it would be for those who are at least fairly cyber uh, fluent, computer fluent, internet fluent, to be able to file those online themselves. And another thing I want to say in terms of strategy, because look, I know that as these moratoriums and these eviction uh, scenarios get ever more convoluted and complicated, Again, they're largely continuing in Northern California. They're largely not continuing in Southern California. If you're a listener out there in California, or frankly, if you're a listener anywhere in the country, I absolutely uh, let you know, again, this is not legal advice, but common sense. You need to consult with local attorneys, local courts, local, local, local. You need to get as up close and personal as you can with your local venue, local court, your local attorneys to figure out what is the intersection between COVID-19 in your area and the courts and court procedure, everything from filing documents to showing up for hearings or whether you can do an in-person hearing or what kind of mask you have to provide. It's all ever-changing. These are moving parts on a continual basis. I wish I could create a spreadsheet, but I don't think that I could realistically do that and have it consist of 10,000 pages. Am I exaggerating? Uh, Possibly I'm undercounting. To have a national spreadsheet for all the COVID rules in every local jurisdiction might well take 20,000 pages. Uh, So is that going to happen in the real world? No. So what you can do as a homeowner is follow up on your own and and figure out what to do. And, okay, so when you're in this situation now, let's say you are a homeowner who's gotten massively behind because your your job was crushed by the COVID rules, and uh, either you're a small business owner or maybe you were – 
you know, a, ma- a manager for a restaurant group or, you know, somebody who was uh, a, a, a waiter in a restaurant somewhere, whatever your position was, it's gone. It may be coming back. It may not be coming back, but you've been out of work for a number of reasons for a long time. So you haven't paid your mortgage. Maybe you've gotten some government relief. Uh, hopefully you have. Um, but we know that that's just a total band-aid. That is not going to solve, solve the problem. And the vast majority of your situation. So let's say you are really behind on uh, on your foreclosure payments. Or let's say your home has already gone to eviction uh, because of the fact that your area doesn't have a moratorium, which, again, you've got to consult with legal counsel to find out what really the situation is. It's just that complicated and convoluted. So when you are facing, uh, you know, the nonjudicial foreclosure, and as I've explained in some recent broadcasts, you still can use things like challenging the debt uh, with a debt verification demand. You still can do things like qualified written request. Um, I think you should be leery, though, about accessing too much open procedure. What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, okay, I think a lot of, of listeners who, who, who've been at this for many years, defending their, their, their foreclosure uh, situation and de- defending their homeowner rights against foreclosure, a lot of listeners will have gone through the bankruptcy mill at some point. Um, there's a there's a temptation to always want to access bankruptcy procedure to the nth degree that you possibly can. So let's say you you were filing a second bankruptcy, and it's within one year. Well, I think a lot of listeners know, and if they don't, I'm giving the general rule. And again, consult with an attorney, or at a minimum. Check this out on the internet to get some, you know, further information, and then consult with an attorney if you want to go that route before uh, proceeding legally. But nevertheless, if you can't afford an attorney uh, and you're going to rely on something on the internet, which is never ideal. But look, we live in the real world, so sometimes you may need to do that. That's not legal advice. That's uh, reality advice. Uh, so let's say you, you are in bankruptcy. Let's say you have filed one bankruptcy previously within a year. Well, under the rules, you only get a 30-day stay. Now, if you take the rules, you know, literally, and you, you pursue them to the nth degree, well, you'll go in and you will request that uh, the bankruptcy court basically certify your new filing and certify the stay. You have to do that typically within a couple weeks of the the new bankruptcy. At least schedule the hearing, and then you're going to have a hearing that, of course, is noticed. And, of course, the creditors who may be causing you or or pushing you into bankruptcy court anyway, who are trying to foreclose on your home, they're going to get noticed that you're intending to continue to stay. And guess what? you just telegraph to them that if they show up at this hearing and they dig in and they come up with whatever, whatever legal argument they think they can come up with, then they can snooker the court into denying your motion. And at that point, they legally have confirmed that they can foreclose on your house. They don't even have to do a motion for relief from stay because they already have a court order saying 
your state does not exist. So what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say just because legal procedure is available to you does not mean you should use it. If you file a bankruptcy, and yes, it's your second one within a year, and yeah, the 30-day stay only applies for 30 days. That is to say the automatic stay only applies for 30 days. Guess what? If you act as if it still applies, I've never seen a house go to sale. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. I've just never seen it. You need to take that spirit into other aspects that involve the other side. You need to force them to push you to what you need to do from their point of view. Don't give them every advantage by scheduling hearings that you may not prevail at. Uh, So that is it for today. Neil will be back next week. And uh, will the COVID stuff go away? We hope it does. In the meantime, so long for now. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.